Welcome to the Unity Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. In today's episode, Senior Pastor Heath Bauer begins a new series called A Life That Pleases God. In our world today, it's so easy to find pleasure in just about anything. Oftentimes, it's the driving force of our daily routines. As a Christian, a person who has surrendered to the will of Jesus, their life will look, act, and live different. Today, we jump into the book of Hebrews and look at Children of the New Covenant. If you're in the Ashland or Tri-State area, we would love to see you. More information on how you can connect with us at Unity will follow today's talk. Here's Heath with today's message, Children of the New Covenant. called A Life That Pleases God. And the reason we're calling it a, a life that pleases God is because it's going to be a study on faith. Hebrews eleven six 6 says, without faith it is impossible to please God. Not hard, it's impossible. That if you're not choosing to live and walk by faith, that it is impossible for you to live a life that God looks down upon and is pleased with. And so we want to understand what faith is. This is not going to be a short series. We're going to begin by, this. today is kind of going to be a setup we're going to be looking through Hebrews chapter 10, which is going to be building up to the definition of faith in Hebrews 11.1. 1. And then we're going to be talking about how we're living a life uh, in, the, in the presence of God in light of the fact that he sees all that we do. We want to make sure that it is, it is pleasing to him, that he's happy with us. And then we're going to be looking through many examples of faith. God doesn't just want to say, do you live by faith? Because everyone will say, yeah, I live by faith. Of course I live by faith. I put my faith in Jesus when I was five. I prayed a prayer and I, I moved on. We'd all think we live by faith. We're here in church. But God is going to show us a lot of just living examples. And so essentially, Hebrews 11 is going to function very much like a tour guide throughout the rest of the, we're going to be preaching through the Old Testament and seeing how they too live by faith. But today, like I said, we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 10. It's setting us up so that we understand the context of what we're talking about here. The book of Hebrews itself is written to the Jews who are suffering for their faith, and now many of them were contemplating walking back on their faith and going back to Judaism. The reason is, is because when they were under this old legalistic set of laws, many of them were unconverted, but uh, when they're under that old Judaistic law code, they were, there wasn't a lot of persecution. Because quite frankly, you weren't you know, the gates of hell weren't in much danger of you just practicing religion. But when you become born again, you begin to follow Jesus, Satan's going to take notice and there will be spiritual opposition to you. And so many of them were receiving this persecution. They're looking back, bizarrely, at the good old days of the old covenant and wishing that they could return back there. And so the first 10 chapters, or at least nine and a half chapters of, of Hebrews is really just a theological study. It starts talking about, it's all about the person of Jesus and saying he's better than the angels. He's better than Joshua. He's better than Moses. The, his priesthood, which is from Melchizedek, don't worry about that right now, but it's better than the priesthood of the Old Testament, which was under Aaron. And he's going to talk about how the new covenant that we have under Jesus Christ is so much better than the old covenant. And so to really understand what faith is, we first have to understand today, we're going to be talking about the new covenant. We are children of the new covenant. We are no longer under the old. So let's look at number one, the new covenant. We have to understand what a covenant is. A covenant is a promise between two parties. It could just be two people. It could be two groups of people. And in this case, we're going to see it's also between mankind and God. And so this is just a very significant 
promise between man and God. And so under the law, under the Old Covenant, you have to understand a little bit about the Old Covenant, your Old Testament. Sometimes you hear it talk about living under the law, what that was like. The Mosaic Covenant, which is a conditional covenant, was based upon Israel's ability to please God through their works and their activity. If they did good, God would bless them. He talks about that in Deuteronomy 28, verse 1. He says, and if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, you're going to obey it, and be careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above the nations of the earth, and all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you, if, it's conditional, if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. And so if they lived obediently to God, God promised to take good care of them. They'd have plenty to eat. He would keep them safe from their neighboring warring countries. He would protect them from famine and disease and all manner of evil. Now that begs the question, like every student, you know, asks, you know, what if I don't do this? You know, is this on the test? You know, what if I don't do this? What if we don't obey God? What if I don't follow him? God answers that too in the same chapter. Deuteronomy 28, verse 15, he says, but if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God, then all of these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Cursed, he said, shall you be in the city. Cursed, you'll be in the field. Cursed when you come in. Cursed when you go out. He even says, cursed is your womb. Your babies aren't even gonna turn out okay. You know, it, it's just, it's awful. You don't wanna be under the curse of God. And they'll begin to experience things like disease and famine. They'll be defeated by their enemies. Even your families won't turn out right. It's, it was awful. You did not want to cross God under that old covenant. So why did man under the old covenant obey God? Honestly, it was out of fear. There's this external law code that says, if I do this, I get good things. If I do this, bad things happen, I'm gonna obey the law. Much like most of you driving to church today, did you obey the speed limit? How many liars are out there today, okay? But you, generally, we try to obey the speed limit because we fear this external law code. I don't want to get pulled over. I don't want to pay money. You, if there was no speed limit sign, would you drive the speed limit? I know full well, George, you would not drive the speed limit today. If there was no speed limit sign, I'm just kidding. George is a good guy. He's a law-abiding fellow. But most of us, if there was no speed limit sign, we're going to go as fast as we possibly can without killing ourselves. We need that external law code, and that's what the Old Testament was. You obeyed it because there was a law that would judge you and, and punish you if you did evil. We're no longer under that covenant, are we? We're no longer under law this covenant of works. We're no longer under that. Instead, we're under a new covenant. We're reminded of that every time we take the Lord's Supper. Did you realize that? 1 Corinthians 11, verse 25, when we're taking the Lord's Supper, it'll say, in the same way, he took the cup after the supper, saying, this is the cup, this cup is the what? The new covenant in my blood. God is making a new deal with mankind. And this time, it's going to not just be a, a mosaic covenant, this agreement between God and man. This is gonna be a covenant in what? in his own blood. So every time we drink this in remembrance of Jesus, it's a reminder, thank God we're no longer under the old covenant. We're under this new covenant of blood. Now, when Jesus talks about a new covenant, the Jew, or a blood covenant, the Jews knew what he was talking about. They knew what blood covenants were. A blood covenant was a very, very serious and solemn promise. They're remembering back to Genesis 15 under a different covenant that God made with Abraham to national Israel. Remember, God promised to Abraham, you know, he, he doesn't have any kids, but God promises him land, seed, and blessing. I'm leading you out of your comfortable land in a place you've never been. I'm going to give you this land for you and your, your nation. And, I, and you don't have any kids yet, but I'm going to give you a lot of kids. 
and you feel out on your own in the middle of a desert, but I'm gonna give you blessing. And that was the Abrahamic covenant. And when God did that, God uh, established a covenant with Abraham through what was called a blood covenant. Now these blood covenants, I've got a graphic here, uh, these, are, these are very serious covenants. What would happen is if two men wanted to enter into a blood covenant, they would take several animals. They would take a heifer, uh, a goat, they would take a ram, they would take a turtle dove, they'd take a pigeon. And the bigger animals, they would kill all the animals. They would take the bigger animals, uh, graphic content alert, children, okay? Uh, they'd take the bigger animals, they would cut them in half and lay one half of each animal on either side of this path, okay? And then the little birds, they would, I don't know, they broke their neck or something, they'd kill them and they'd lay them on either side of the path. And then what would happen is these two people, these two parties or representing two groups would walk through this bloody path that was created in between these dead animals as they made their covenant. And the idea was, so it be done to me if I break this promise that I am making to you today. That was a very, very serious covenant that you're making. You wouldn't do this if you owed some guy 20 bucks, okay? This is a very, very serious and solemn promise. Now, when God made this promise to Abraham, God did something unique and special. Two people didn't walk through on this blood, blood covenant. Only God went through. While Abraham was asleep, after he had prepared this, while he was asleep, God passed through, represented by a smoking pot and a torch, and passed through by himself. Now, if God is the only one walking that bloody path by himself, what does that communicate? that this covenant is only conditioned upon God's faithfulness. Abraham, no matter what you do, I'm gonna be faithful to my promise and you will have land, seed, and blessing. This I promise, okay? And by the way, that promise is not completely fulfilled yet, which means God has a future fulfillment for Israel where he's going to promise them this land, seed, and blessing. And so um, beyond this though, this blood covenant is supposed to make us remember what Jesus promised. Jesus also made a blood covenant between us, didn't he? That is also conditional only upon himself. Jesus, through this bloody path, Jesus' body was torn, much like these animals, and Jesus walked this bloody path, and Jesus made an oath and a promise and a covenant with mankind through faith that based only upon what Jesus has done, even if as a believer we, we go back and we sin at times, when we are faithless, he's gonna remain faithful because Jesus' blood covenant, the new covenant, his blood is based only on what Jesus has done and not on our ability to be good for the rest of our lives. Aren't you glad? Any of you blow it already this morning? You got in a fight with your wife on the way to church, men? You know, we do that. Satan jumps all over our kids and it gets us all riled up and angry. And, you know, we sin on the way to church to worship God. And yet, my this, the stance of my position before God is still secure because it's a blood covenant that Jesus did himself. He walked that path alone. By the way, this is why you can't, this is another reason, one of many, many, that you can't lose your salvation because it is a blood covenant that Jesus walked through and it's a con covenant conditional only upon the obedience of Jesus Christ. And so if Jesus can sin, then you can go to hell. But if Jesus cannot sin, friends, once you are part of that covenant by faith, it's based upon his faithfulness. Philippians 1.6, he who began a good work in you, what will he also do? He will complete it all the way until the day of Jesus Christ. This is a blood covenant made in his blood. The Lord's Supper reminds us every time we take it, you are secure in him. Therefore, live a holy life. There's a lot different motivation under the new covenant than we had under the old covenant. Now, Hebrews 10.16, let's look at that briefly. He's quoting Jeremiah chapter 31 here. 
He says, this is the covenant. He's gonna describe a little bit of what this new covenant is. This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days. Okay, after this old, te- old covenant is, is put aside, I'm gonna make a new covenant with them. Let me describe it, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their hearts and I will write it on their, in, on their minds. Where was the law prior to Jesus? It was just an external book, wasn't it? There was a law of God that people called you to. You obey this. If you don't, you're gonna get in trouble. If you obey this, God will bless you. It's sort of like kindergarten. You do good on your test, the teacher gives you a piece of candy. You don't do good on your test, you know, I don't know, something happens, sit in the corner, they do it anymore. Something bad happens, something bad happens at home. Okay? But there's, there's blessing for doing good, there's cursing for doing evil, that's the old covenant. The new covenant is simply, you're going to obey God, not because you're afraid of some external motivation, okay? There's not something externally motivating you to obey the law. Where is the law now, he says? He's gonna write it where? in our hearts and minds. It's gonna be internal. Now, it's not an external motivation to get something from God. It's an internal motivation. I want to do these things. I wanna live right. I wanna live holy because I want to, because God made me want to, because as we studied this morning during our worship, we are a new creation. I'm not like the old guy anymore. I want to do good. I want to live well. I want to live in the pleasure of God. I wanna live by faith. The law of God is written on our hearts. It's sort of like when you were a kid and your parents say, clean your room. Did you kid, is there ever a child alive who likes to clean their room? Uh, One of you guys have one of them, it does, that's fine. But most kids, do they instinctively clean up after themselves? They instinctively take their plates to the the kitchen. You have to bring them away from constantly washing dishes and mopping floors. And do your your children do that? If so, you know, I want you to come up here and teach about the family. My kids didn't do that. I didn't do that. Now, as an adult, do I clean my room? Yes. Is it because my mom is calling me up? Now, Heath, did you clean up your room? My mom doesn't do that, would you believe? She doesn't do that, and yet I still clean up my room voluntarily from the inside, from my own heart, my own mind. I want a clean room. Why? Because I'm mature now. I'm not the same person I once was. I now see the value in having a clean room, that in the dark, you know, you're getting up in the middle of the night, you're not tripping over your own clothes and you can find things and your room doesn't stink. I like those things as an adult. Kids don't understand that. And so the law of the clean room is now in my heart and mind. So that's what the new covenant is. Why do we obey God? To get something from God? No, we obey God because we want to obey God. That's what a new believer, that's what a new life, new conversion being born again means. Well, Hebrews is reminding the new covenant children they're no longer under this Old Testament covenant of law of law and works, that we obey God from a different motivation. We're no longer stuck to this uh, rigid formalism. We don't come to God. Remember in Isaiah 1, he talks about with their lips, they honor me. They come and they sing all these songs. It says their heart is far from me. It would be like coming and singing songs, but you're thinking about the game. Oh, we have hum, hum, hum. Praise God from whom, wow, yeah, God. And our heart isn't there, God. That's the old covenant. I am doing a perfunctory task so God, so I can check off the boxes so that God will make my life easy. We're no longer under that old covenant way of rigid formalism, human tradition, being emotionally distant from God, living out of fear, doing things just so I can get something from God. We do these things out of joy because we love him. 1 John 5, 3 says, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. When we truly love God, it represents itself in a certain way. I obey the law of God. According to 1 John 5, is there such thing as a believer who truly loves God who refuses to obey his word? No such thing. 
not a real Christian. If you love him, you're going to keep his commandments. And how do we feel about God's commandments? He says, and his commandments are not burdensome. They don't weigh me down. I don't hate to follow God's word. I long to obey God's word. I find joy in the law of God. I find joy in what it brings to me in my life. I believe that God's way is what's best for my life, and I have no problem following it. I do it from the heart. Well, number two, we're going to see that the new covenant invites us to draw near to God. The end of verse 10, we're going to see here, again, we said it was a turning point in the book. He was talking about why Jesus is so much better than all this Old Testament stuff. And Old Testament is still good, for example. It's a shadow, a picture of things to come. So, sorry, Andy Stanley, we don't unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament. You know, we still are connected to it. It's important teaching. However, we don't live under the law. It's moral law, certainly, but not its ceremonial, its dietary laws. Otherwise, y'all wouldn't be able to eat shrimp. Okay, so aren't you glad you're in the new covenant? You guys can have shrimp, you Cajun friends. In verse 19, he says, therefore, because of everything that we just talked about Jesus being better than the old covenant and we're under this new covenant, therefore, brothers, we have confidence to enter the, the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. So G Hebrews says that Jesus dying on the cross, the tearing of his flesh also tore something else. It tore a curtain, a veil, something that was separating us from God. And now God is inviting you and I to draw near. Here's another advantage of living in the new covenant rather than the old. In the Old Testament, there were a lot of things that kept you separated from God. When Moses was on the, law, on the mountain getting the law of God, could people go near God? No, you could not. If you came near the mountain, you were killed. If an animal, if one of your animals was allowed to walk near the mountain, he was killed. God was saying, stay away. Even in the, the temple, the temple of Herod or the temple of Solomon, it was all communicating, you need to stay away. We got a graphic here for you, the temple. Those of you who have seen the temple, can't see that probably real clearly from far away, but you get the idea. On the outer wall of the temple, by the way, the temple is sort of a, a picture of God on earth. When you wanna see what God is like, his beauty, his majesty, his holiness, you come to the temple, you approach the temple, you go there to learn about God, to commune with him, to worship him, to receive sacrifice of sins, okay? And so you approach the temple, but as soon as you approach the temple, the first thing you're gonna realize is God is holy, he's separated from you. So there was this outer perimeter wall. It was to keep all the just curiosity seekers away. It was to keep away those who are unholy and profane, who don't respect what's on the inside of there. It kept you out. You go a little bit further in, you have uh, the court of the Gentiles. That's where you and I would be allowed to go. And in the court of the Gentiles, you couldn't go in there unless you were willing to do things God's way, willing to obey him. You had to be ceremonially, ritually clean. You had to take off your shoes. And you had to be willing to observe proper etiquette and follow the law of God. You had to maintain a proper and respectful distance away from any gates that would lead you further inward, which the next gate inward would be the, the court of women. You could go in there. And there was another wall there, something to separate you from God. And beyond that, there was the court of the Israelites. You go in, inside further. And then the average Jew couldn't go any further than that. You had to be a priest, someone who went between you and God. And then as you approach the, the, the main temple itself, this grand, glorious construct, you, couldn't go in, you, you could go inside and do certain activities, but it was only the high priest who was able to go into the holy place and then further yet beyond the curtain to the Holy of Holies. The Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant was. You saw Indiana Jones. 
you know what the Ark of the Covenant is. And so it's that manifest presence of God on earth. It's a picture of God's power and his blessing upon the nation. It's upon which the blood would be sprinkled every year at the Day of Atonement upon the mercy seat and would be a representative of the kind of atonement we'd receive through Jesus. And only once a year could the great high priest go inside there, not a day of his own choosing, not willy-nilly. In fact, if there was anything impure about him, God would kill him. That's why they would have the habit of tying ropes around their ankles. Nobody wanted to go in and fetch out the dead high priest from the Holy of Holies, you know? And so it would be pretty nasty. And so they had that rope, you know, pull this guy out. So what separated the, the holiest place, the Holy of Holies, was this, what the Bible just calls a veil, sometimes a curtain. When I say veil and curtain, you're thinking wedding and living room, okay? You're thinking just some thin, flimsy thing. Oh, hey, what are the neighbors doing today, okay? When we say veil, when we say curtain, I want you to understand fully what we're talking about here. The veil of God that covers the holiest place and the holy, the, the holy of holies and the holy place and the rest of the temple that separates, keeps man out, even the greatest of men, the high priest, he couldn't go in but once a year and only with the blood of sacrifice, this curtain was a big reminder from God, keep out, you're not welcome. I'm holy and you're not. This curtain, we think of something thick like a, like a canvas military bag, maybe a couple millimeters thick, okay? It's not real, not real thick. This curtain, Josephus tells us, was four inches thick of solid material. I don't even know how you'd make that. Four inches thick. And this was not a small curtain either, as you see here in this, in this picture here. This was 60 foot tall and 30 feet wide. I asked Vesey about how tall the sanctuary is at its tallest place, he says maybe 35, 40 feet. And so the curtain of the temple of God would massively dwarf this sanctuary here. This is enormous, thick, heavy thing. It said, Josephus tells us, he's a Jewish historian, reminds us that it took 300 priests to move this, this curtain that separated man from God. He also records that if you put teams of horses on either side of this curtain, they could not pull it apart. This was a mighty, strong, impenetrable barrier between man and the holiest place where God was. It was God reminding man, I'm holy, you're not. You can't approach me, stay back. The only way you can do that is through a representative who comes through with a blood offering once a year and upon a time of my choosing. The Bible is saying Jesus, for us, was both that great high priest and the blood offering who went into the holiest place. And when Jesus died on the cross, what happened to the curtain? It was torn in two. The Bible, uh, the Bible goes on to tell us in Matthew 27, 51, and behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. What did that communicate? This is a work of God, not man. Man didn't just go in there and say, you know what? I'm gonna come into God's presence my own way. Let's get out the scissors, or better at the chainsaw. I mean, I don't know how you get through a four inch thick, heavy curtain like that, but man, he, didn't, he can't just start from the bottom up. God tore it from the top down. This heavy thing that teams of horses couldn't pull apart, God destroyed it when Jesus died on the cross for our sins. And when that blood sacrifice was was placed, if you will, on the great celestial mercy seat of God, God says, this curtain's no longer needed. What is God communicating when that curtain's gone? The most holy place in the universe, the very presence of God, you're welcome to go there. You don't need a priest anymore. In fact, the Bible calls us a kingdom of priests. It's a doctrine called the priesthood of the believer. You don't need to come to some priest to, to pray on your behalf to go to God. You don't have to pray to a saint to pray to God. You don't have to pray to Mary to pray to God. You're a priest yourself. 
God ripped that apart. There's no more veil of separation. God invites us. He wants us to come close. And so with that curtain taken aside, we now come to verse 23. Since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near. That's a terrifying thought to the Jew. When you say draw near to God, they're all thinking terrifying, drop down like a dead man. God's going to strike me dead if I come near the mountain where he's given Moses the Ten Commandments. He's going to kill me. Drawing near to God is a terrifying prospect. But now he's saying, since we have the great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart of full assurance of faith. That through this faith that we express in Jesus Christ, he says, our hearts become sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. He's talking about the fact that we are, we're cleansed from the inside out. Our heart inside is cleansed and progressively over time. That's what sanctification means. You're progressively sanctified. Your life becomes increasingly like God. And that's what Jesus did when his flesh was torn and the veil was torn. And now God says, I want you to come in. In John 17, when Jesus is praying to the Father right before he died, right before he went off to the Holy Week and he'd be led off to his death, the thing he was praying for you and I, he prayed for us, by the way. I'm praying for all those who will believe in me through their name. He says, that they may be one, that the world might believe that you have sent me. And he says, Father, I pray that they may be with me where I am. Does that amaze you? That Jesus Christ, the one who died in our place, God of the universe, present at creation, and you know, without him, nothing was made that was made. The one who sustains all things, the one who judges all things, Jesus Christ wants you to be close to him. This is just, this, to you, you're like, yeah, I know, I've been to church. <laughs> I know God wants me close. Who wouldn't want me close to him? And, and that's how man feels sometimes. Jews wouldn't be quite as flippant in their heart about that. They know, they know that they're sinful and that they shouldn't be able to approach God. Jesus made a way for us to do that. God was announcing, I want you to have access to the holiest place uh, that exists. I want you right here, right next to me in my presence. When we were in China, we had a couple of dogs. Got a picture for her that looks like them, but it's not them, okay? And these are, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing it right, but they were called, I think, Chippins, <laughs> Chihuahua Minpins. Uh, I call them other names many times as they destroyed things in the house. But these little dogs, Shadow and Cole, our kids named them, and these little puppies were with us the duration of the 13 years we were overseas. And these little puppies, they loved to get into trouble. They'd go outside and they'd go for walks and they'd get off the leash sometimes accidentally. And, and they'd just run around, they'd tear things up, eat things they shouldn't eat. And they'd, they'd, or it'd be raining, they'd come in all muddy and dirty. I mean, y'all love the smell of wet dog, don't you? You can, you can picture that smell in your mind right now, can't you? Wet dog, dirty paws, eating unsavory, unholy things outside. And they come into my house. And there's, cert there's a certain wall of a barrier that we don't let unholy bad things in. And right at the entrance of our house is this little tiled off area, if you will, the court of the puppies. It's where they were allowed to come when they came outside. And then my daughter would get the towel and maybe some wet wipes, and they would go through. I, I required this. Sorry, I'm probably a Scrooge, but I made them dry off the dog. I made them take wet wipes to the feet because they'd come with these nasty, muddy paws and all kinds of unholy things they're going to drag into my house. And so they would wipe off and clean off these dogs. But as soon as that was there, you know, because during this time, by the way, they were leashed to the door. They couldn't come in at their own accord. There was something, a veil, if you will, that was separating them from coming into the rest of the home. But as soon as they were brought in, by a representative that I love, my daughters, and they were cleansed and clean. They were allowed to have intimate fellowship with us, and they'd go not into just the holy place, into our house, but the holy of holies. 
okay? They would be allowed to come into our living room and even at times on the couch. And so when they were cleaned up, they would immediately, they were just immediately drawn to the one that loves them. And that was my wife. And she'd sit there on the couch on her computer doing her work. And these dogs would leap up in a single bound and just launch like, a, like in a coordinated Cirque du Soleil fashion, just kind of up next to my wife, and they would bookend her on the legs, and they would get as close as they could to her, you know, and they would just, like the great sphinx of Egypt, you know, guarding the pyramids. Those are the dogs. They'd sit there, and they were enjoying this close, unbroken fellowship because they had been brought in, and they had been cleansed, and they had been now invited to draw close, and the family wants them close to them. This is a picture of what God is like with us, that we come into him and we're full of dirt and grime and filth and God through Jesus Christ, the chosen one, has cleansed us. But now, not just cleansing us, now go to your room, go to the kennel. He invites us into the holy place, even to the most holy place, if you will, to snuggle him up on the couch to come as close to God as you dare to come, to draw near. This was good news to the Jew. He also says that if we want to draw near to God, we're going to draw near to someone else too. In verse 24 and 25, who do we draw near to? One another. He said, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. He's saying that an evidence of faith is that we change our attitude about gathering as believers in church. As a kid, did you like coming to church? You can be honest. Did you like going to church as a kid? I didn't. Maybe y'all did. You were holy kids. I wasn't. I didn't want to go to church. Every morning in the winter, I would pray for snow. Happiest thing I ever heard was we're not going to church because there's snow drifts in Iowa preventing us from going to church. I had no longing to commune with the holy God. I did not want to be with his people. I wanted to be by myself. I wanted to play the Atari 2600. Anybody? Yeah, I wanted to stay at home. I had greater longings and, and desires than to go to see God. But that changed somewhere along the line, didn't it? I want to be in church. I went off to college. I chose to go to church because I wanted to. I even got involved. I gave money as a college kid. I gave money. I helped in Awanas. I did other things because I wanted to. Nobody's telling me I have to do this. I don't get extra credit with God. I just, I wanted to be there. God changed my heart and my attitude about it. So now I prioritize meeting together. So I don't neglect the gathering together as the manner of some. Yeah, a lot of my college friends, kids I went to high school with, they stopped going to church. They got confirmed in some church a long time ago. I don't need to go to church anymore. I'm good. And so they're not going to church. So some are going to say, you know what? Church isn't important enough for me to prioritize it in my schedule. I'll let anything get in the way. You know, work, academics, sports, whatever. I don't need church. Church is what I do when there's just nothing else on my schedule. What else is there? Absolutely nothing. Well, I guess I'm going to go ahead and renew my fire insurance with God. I'm going to go. I'm going to show up to church, you know, and make sure I'm all right with him, you know, and I'll just kind of slip God in here and there where it's useful. That's how some do it. He says, but not you. He says, you don't neglect that gathering together. Your drawing near to God is represented by your desire to draw near to one another. And when we do, he says, we do that to stir up one another to love and good works. There's two things that we're to bring out of one another. The word stir up means that you do some kind of action to get something that was at rest, and now it's up and agitated. It's moving. When I was a kid on the farm, there was a pond, and it was always clear until you take the first step and you sink like two feet into the mud. And when you do that, all this mud comes up and now you can't see through the water anymore. All the 
particles that used to be resting on the floor are now active and moving. You can see them and they're, they're swirling around. On that same farm, when my dad wanted to get the feeder pigs into the trailer to sell them off at market, what would he do? These pigs, left to himself, what does a pig do? He's going to sit, he's going to eat, he's going to sleep, and he's going to do other things. Okay? Pigs are just going to do whatever comes naturally to the flesh. He's just going to sit there and eat and do nothing. He's, just, he's in it for him. If there's other pigs that need to eat, I don't care. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I've seen these pigs. They're selfish. They just, they're eating it all themselves and doing what they can just to feed themselves, and they're just lazy, and they're sitting there. And my dad wanted to stir them up to a forward action, get in the trailer. So he'd come in. He'd yell at him. He'd kick at him. He'd slap him. He'd do whatever he needed to do to stir them up. They're sitting still. They should be moving forward. That's the word that we're using here in the book of Hebrews. Now, I'm not encouraging anybody to yell at or slap or hit or kick anybody here in church to get them moving. But the Bible says, when we come to church, it's not with the intention of just sitting down and listening and going home. He says, we come to church with a different attitude. We come to church, whose life can I interact with today? Do you come to church like that? That you're not just coming for what you get out of it. I just wanna feed and go home. What does that sound like? It sounds like the feeder pigs. Okay? I don't just come to church to see what I can get out of it. I come to church to, to stir up one another to love and good works. I look around on Sunday mornings. Who can I interact with? Who's by themselves? Needs someone to talk to. Who looks discouraged? Who can I encourage? Who's new? If I was new, how would I feel in a church? Probably kind of scared, kind of nervous. What's it going to be like? Are people going to be friendly? And so I'll look for people who are new, and I'll be like, hey, what's your name? Be really crazy. Hey, why don't you come out to lunch for us? you know, with us here. And we just, we do things always with the intention of blessing other people. That's how you come to church. He says to stir one another toward love. That's what love is, by the way. You're doing what's best for them, not yourself. You're engaging them. You're trying to draw them in, make them feel like family. And not only that, but we're to stir people up to good works, get agitated, get that dirt from the bottom of the pond and moving and going. And we ask people, hey, are you involved anywhere here? What's your ministry here? Why don't you join me in mine? Why don't you try that out? Hey, are you in a community group yet? We got a great one going here. Would you join me next Sunday? I'd love to see you. Hey, are you, are you in a D group, a discipleship group? Just a few of us meet. We got an opening in our group. Would you like to join? Would you like to be a part of it? I'll get you connected. You know, this is what it looks like to stir one another up to love and good works. We get to know one another. We engage one another in life together. That's what church is. Church is not a building. It's not a service. It's a people, right? And a A mission. We're here to engage other people when we come to church. That's our drawing near to God looks like this. We draw near to God's people. That's an evidence that we have a desire to draw near to him. Number three, the new covenant results in repentance. Under the new covenant, we interact with sin differently than we used to. He says in verse 26, for if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment, a fury of fire that will consume their adversaries. That's a lot of scary words. Let's break this down a little bit. He says, if we go on sinning deliberately... Okay. After you've come, you've been enlightened, you have an idea of what truth is, and yet we choose to go on sinning deliberately. Deliberately means we know what God says, but I'm going to do my own thing. I know what God says, and theoretically it's probably true somewhere, but in the real life, this is how we live. That is what it means to sin deliberately. In Numbers 15, he calls it sinning with a high hand. Numbers 15, verse 30 says, But the person who does anything with a high hand reviles the Lord because he has despised the word of the Lord and has broken his commandment. 
When we, when we know what the truth of what God's word says and we choose not to follow it, he says we sin with a high hand and we revile God, we mock him. We despise the word of the Lord. We break his commands. Now, a high hand, we don't use it very often. I mean, when we say high hand, I don't mean this. Hey, Bob, what's up? You know, hey, high five. We're talking about a high hand, a raised fist. What does this communicate to you? Hey, Larry, good morning. How are we doing, brother? You know, anybody you greet one another that way? Good to see you. We don't do that. When there's a raised fist above your head, I don't care if you're Black Lives Matter or Hunger Games or what, this always means one thing. I'm in rebellion. Sometimes you'll see that people on TV, they're breaking, they're vandalizing things, they're burning things, they're looting and stealing. And then someone will see a camera and they'll raise a fist in the sky. What they're saying is, we know what the laws of the government of the land say, but we don't care. We're in open rebellion to this government. We do not recognize its sovereignty over us. What does that look like to sin with a high hand with God? It means we know what God says and we choose to do something else. I know God says, you know, don't be immoral before marriage, don't live together before marriage, but I'm gonna do it because that's what everybody does. I'm gonna do it anyway because I, I couldn't afford the rent if I don't. I mean, what did people do before immorality? I'll tell you what they did. They got male roommates. Males got males. Female got female roommates. You went together, you know, but I'm going to do it my way because this is what the world is doing. It means I know what God says about drunkenness, but I'm going to get drunk anyway because this is what I do every night. Not even going to try to get out of it. I'm not talking about those who are struggling against it. God help you. You know, I'm talking about those who don't care. They're just like, I'm going to live in this. We just, we sin with a high hand. I know what God says about, you know, complaining, gossip, and backbiting, but that's my right. I'm going to do it anyway. It means that I know what God says about, you know, pornography or divorce. I know my wife hasn't done anything that deserves divorce, but I just don't want to be with her anymore. I have some better ideas. I've got my eyes on other prospects, so I'm going to go marry who I want. It's, God calls that sinning with a high hand. God sees us as in active rebellion against him. And when we do that, it says he, we, prof, uh, I'm getting ahead of myself here. I'll tell you what he says in Hebrews 10, 29. When we do that, he talks about we should have a fearful expectation of judgment. He says, because when we do that, we trample underfoot the son of God and have profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace. Does that sound like anything you as a believer want to do? Do you want to trample underfoot Jesus? Do you want to profane the blood covenant God made with you? Do you want to outrage the spirit of grace that drew you to God? I don't want to do any of those things. To trample underfoot Jesus by sinning willfully after we know what's right, the reason he says that is uh, because we're, we're basically communicating Jesus isn't worth that much to me. What do you walk on? I mean, you walk on things that aren't important to you. Most of you don't have streets of gold at your house, but you walk off things that are unimportant to you. Okay, so it used to be at the Texas Roadhouse, you'd eat peanuts, and what do you do with the shell? Throw it on the floor, and you walk on the shell. What have you communicated about that shell? I have no intention of returning to that shell. That shell has no meaning to me, has no value to me. I will walk upon this peanut shell. And when the Bible says that we know what the Word of God says, and we choose deliberately, intentionally, willfully to do what we want, he says we trample underfoot Jesus Christ. We're saying you and your sacrifice don't mean enough for me to change how I live. I'm going to go on doing what I want to do. 
That's a scary place. You don't want to be there. He says this leads to falling into the hands of a living God. He says it's a fearful thing to fall in the hands of a living God. You don't want to fall into God for his judgment. I mean, the scariest thing in the universe, we've said before, it's not Satan. It's not his demons. It's not witches. It's nothing you've ever seen in a horror movie. The scariest thing in the universe is being a sinful person in the hands of a living God. That is terrifying. Mark 5.12, even the demons were terrified of Jesus. Please don't send us to the judgment that is to come before our time. Send us into these pigs. Number four, we see the new covenant results in perseverance. As these Jews are contemplating going back to their old life, they're reminded of how good it is truly to live in the presence of God and in obedience. He says, but recall the former days when you were enlightened. Means you, you learned about what the truth was. You used to be in the dark. Now you have light. You know what's true. He says, remember, he says, yeah, you endured a hard struggle with suffering, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. He goes on continuing to talk about this. He says, but don't throw away your confidence for it has great reward. He's reminding them the Christian life is hard, but there's such great reward. It's like having kids. Those of you who have little ones at home, is that easy? You know, you have red eyes this morning for a reason because you've been up all night and the kids are crying and you're changing diapers and they're sticking bottles in their face and you're buying stuff and you're, you're, you've got back problems because you're carrying around that, that car seat everywhere you go. It's not easy raising kids. But would you ever go back to a day where you never had children? There's not a parent alive here that would say, I'd love to go back to a day when I never had kids. Kids are a blessing. Yeah, it's a lot of work. It's a difficult path, but it's, there's a, a joy and a blessing that we find in children that you couldn't have otherwise. God is saying that's what the Christian life is like. There's a, it's, yes, it's difficult, but it's a path of blessing. He says in verse 36 of Hebrews, uh, of Hebrews 10, for you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while and the coming one will come and not delay. He's talking about the return of Jesus Christ. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. He says, we have need of endurance. Endurance is something that true believers do. True believers, we, it's a doctrine called the perseverance of the saints. True believers always endure. It doesn't mean you don't have times where you kind of, you sin, you'd have doubts at times, or you, you struggle with something in your life. He's talking about somebody who walks away from Jesus. He's never coming back. He says, you have need of endurance. He's, he's trying to get them to remember that there's, there's difficulty here, but there's, there's so much more blessing that far outweighs the difficult times that you're going to have. In verse 37, 38, he, goes, he quotes Habakkuk 2 and says, my righteous one shall live by faith. Most of us would say we express faith in God at some point in time in our life. You know, we realize that we have sin. God has to punish sin. I don't want to go to hell. So I prayed a prayer. I walked an aisle. I did something to communicate to God. I want to trust you in that matter of saving me from hell. But he says here that righteous ones who are right before God, he says, we don't just express faith in God one time in our life to be saved. He says it results in a walk of life. It results in living by faith. It means every decision we make on, in life here on out, from the time you believe in Jesus to the time that you die, every decision that we make is by faith, trusting God's way. It means every decision we make in life is informed by the word of God. 
that we seek out God's counsel in the word of God. How should I live? How should I treat my wife? How should I treat my kids? How should I work in the job? How should I worship here? How should I serve? How should I treat one another? We make every decision informed by the word of God and having read it, we make a resolute decision. I'm going to obey it. And then once I obey it, why do I obey it so blindly? It's because I trust that God's ways are best. I I just leave the outcome with him. That's what faith looks like. That's what living by faith looks like. It means you intentionally inform your decisions by the word of God. You make a commitment, I'm going to obey it. No matter what it says, no matter how crazy it feels, I'm gonna do it. And I'm just gonna trust God with the outcome. I don't know what's coming, but God, I trust you that it's right. What's your alternative? It's a word called pragmatism. It means you make decisions informed about my idea as to how I want things to end. I want to get to this outcome. I've already decided that outcome is best for me, so I'm going to do whatever it takes to get to that outcome. That's pragmatism. That's what the Bible also calls walking by sight. It's what I can see. It's what I can understand. It's what I've reasoned through. But it's not walking by faith. Walking by faith is making sure I'm informed about what God's word says about something. I make a resolute commitment. I'm going to obey it no matter what because I trust God with the outcome. Like Job said, though he slay me, yet I will trust him. That's what living by faith looks like. Every decision is informed by the word of God and I trust him. Just sometimes though, when you read the word of God, you get your quiet time, you make a commitment. I'm gonna get up, I'm gonna read the word of God every day before I go to work and you open up the Bible. Does it ever say things that challenge how you live? If it doesn't, you're either divine glorified being or you're reading the wrong Bible. Maybe you're reading something else. Maybe you're reading the morning news or some Facebook page that just says, you're the best. You deserve everything. You're amazing. You're awesome. Your thought, be true to yourself. Be authentic to yourself. That's what the world says. The Bible often says, we've sinned. We fall short of the glory of God. We've, we've got, we got room to grow. We got to walk by faith, not by sight. And so the Bible's going to say things that challenge the way that we live. And we're going to have a crisis of faith. Do I trust God or do I trust me? And so... It's kind of like the, the great Christian movie, The Karate Kid. It's a joke, by the way. Um, but you get this little skinny kid, Daniel LaRusso, and he comes into town. I'm talking about the old one, not the new one doesn't count for me. This old one, Daniel LaRusso, he moves into town, skinny kid. Wrong girl flirts with him. He gets beat up by a bunch of kids. Mr. Miyagi, little guy, like, you know, four foot tall, you know, can fight like a gorilla, though. And he just, he all of a sudden works over and manhandles all these young guys, this old janitor at his apartment complex. And so Daniel wants to know, how does this old guy whoop a bunch of young guys? I, I want to learn whatever you call that. Oh, karate? Teach me karate. What's the first thing Mr. Miyagi does? Teach him how to kick? No, you, you've seen the movie. Yeah, yeah, we've never read Zephaniah, but buddy, we know what Mr. Miyagi says on how to teach karate. So we know wax on, don't we? Not like this, he says, like this. Wax on, wax off. This hand, this hand. Daniel sounds like, man, I don't know what we're doing, but I'm going to trust you initially. He's hesitant. He comes back another day. What is it? I forget which order it is. It's either paint the fence, I think. Not like this, like this, like this. Come back again. What is it? Sand the deck. Not like this, like this, like this. And so pretty soon Daniel's ready to give up. He's like, I wanted to trust you. I tried it out. You enlightened me a little bit, but like, I don't see how this is getting me to where I want to be. It's not leading to my pragmatic desired end. He wouldn't trust his master. But then Mr. Miyagi's like, okay, I got to pull back the curtain here and show him why we're doing all this. You know, all right, show me, wax on, you know. And he'll go to punch him and Daniel just instinctively, reflexively, he starts painting the fence and waxing and, and sanding decks and all kinds of stuff and he's protecting himself and now, ah, 
Now I understand. I didn't trust that what this was doing is actually for my good, but I get it now. And so now I can go to All Valley Tournament and kick Johnny Lawrence in the face. And I can, I can get a trophy and I can get the girl and all life is good. And it would be if he just trusts Mr. Miyagi, even though he tells you to do things that don't make sense. And that's what the Bible does often. It teaches us things that don't make sense. And like Daniel LaRusso, skinny, ignorant kid, we go, God's way doesn't look right to me. I think I should be living this way. This is the way everybody else is doing it, so I should be doing it that way. And sometimes we want to walk back on our faith and we want to abandon our master and say, he doesn't know the right way. Surely that's not going to lead to my best outcome. And we get discouraged and we want to walk away from our faith. But he says in verse 38 here, my righteous one, the one who's right with God, will live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. Shrink back has the idea of you started pursuing God like, like Daniel's son did with Mr. Miyagi and you eventually are like, I'm going to walk away from it all. I tried it out. I tried to go this way. I don't trust you with the outcome. And so he says some people try to do that. They come to church. They try to be a good person. They, they try out the Christian life. And for whatever reason or another, they come to something, the word of God, they don't like, they don't agree. They come into a trial in their life and they're like, I'm done with God. I'm walking out on God. He says that is what he calls shrinking back. To understand what shrink back means, I want to compare it to another word. The word apostle, remember the guys who followed Jesus and Jesus sent them out into all the world? Apostel, uh, uh, apostolos is also, it come, the verb of, to be an apostle is apostello. It means to go out by faith. Jesus says, here's what I want you to do. Here's the body of truth I want to give you. They're not going to agree with it. You're going to get persecuted. But by faith, I want you to trust me. And I want you to go out. An apostello. He's going to go out by faith and trust God and live obediently. This word to shrink back is hupostello. It doesn't mean to go out by faith and to trust Jesus with the outcome. It means to shrink back, to shrink up underneath, to hide. Okay? He's scared, so he's not going to come out. He doesn't want to do what God wants because when he goes out in the world, he realizes people don't like our Bible. They don't like our God. They don't like being told that they're sinners. And, the, and, and we shrink back. I'm not going to talk about abortion. I'm not going to talk about homosexuality. I'm not going to talk about Jesus being the only way because people don't like that. So I'm going to shrink back. And I'm going to walk away from the faith because I don't like being persecuted much. It's kind of like when a turtle's in his shell. When he feels confident to move forward, he's out there, he's sticking his neck out, and he's moving. When, he fe when he's worried about just protecting himself, what does a turtle do? That's right, he pulls right on inside. His head, he comes up underneath. That's hupostello. He says, when we do that as a practice way of life and we back away from Jesus, we're not just talking about somebody here who they were nervous to share the gospel last week, they should have and didn't. We're not talking about that person. We're talking about an apostate. Somebody who started to follow Jesus, they tried out the Christian faith, maybe they prayed a prayer, they came to church, they tried out a group, they served a little bit, something bad happens in their life. I'm done with God. I'm walking away from God. The Bible says his soul has no pleasure in him. They have shrunk back. He says, Hebrews says here, that the shrinkers, if you will, he says, we are not those who shrink back and are destroyed, but who have faith and preserve their souls. Those who shrink back evidence the fact that they weren't truly converted. I'm not going to follow God. I'm not going to go out there. I'm not going to trust God. I'm going to shrink back and protect myself. He says, but we are those who trust God. We move forward. And in moving forward into that dangerous path, actually, that's the path that leads to preserving my soul. He who will save his life will lose it. He who will trust me, lose his life, will keep it. 
Reminds me of a movie I watched many years ago, 1972 movie called The Poseidon Adventure. Anybody catch that? Uh, you're, it was about this luxury ocean liner. Everybody's celebrating, celebrating New Year's or something, and they go out in this luxury liner. They're in the middle of the ocean. Everybody's having fun. They're eating. They're drinking. They're being married. This is the purpose of my life. But all of a sudden, this rogue wave hits the ship, and it flips the ship upside down. So that this ship, kind of like you ever do that as a kid and put a cup on water and realize that there's air trapped in it, you know? That's how the ship was. It was trapped on the water. And you got folks in this, now it's an upside down world they're living in. And they're scared because there's lots of bad things happen around them. They can hear the creaks and the explosions and things don't seem right anymore. And they just kind of huddle together in sort of this elite dining area. They're living as best they know how. And then along comes, and it almost plays out like a Christian allegory. Along comes this rogue priest, Gene Hackman. Okay, This rogue priest comes up and says, I want you to follow me. He used to be a firefighter before being a man of the cloth. And he was this firefighter and he had been into the bowels of the ship before. I'm gonna take you to places that I've been. But you have to trust me. And people are looking at him and go, why would I trust this, this upstart priest guy? And so most people, they did what they thought was the safe thing. They look around, they see everybody else, they're not gonna follow this guy, why should I follow this guy? And so they stayed with everybody else inside the safe-looking dining room where, where the familiarity was, where the people were, where there's a lot of space. Wide is the gate that leads to destruction, right? It's where everybody goes. What is the narrow path that leads to life that Hackman's gonna lead them on? It leads to life. It's the narrow path. And he says, difficult is the way that lead to life and few there be that find it. And so they go on this grand journey through what is now the top of the ship, which used to be the bottom of the ship, and they get there. And as they get to the very end, they realize that they're almost, they're right on the cusp of being saved, and there's this chasm here and this red wheel with a cross in the middle, okay? And they realize somebody has to die to get these few trusting remaining people to safety. And so Hackman, the priest, it's almost like right before he sacrifices his life, he calls out to God, why have you forsaken me? Who else has to die? And he jumps onto this wheel, he turns it, opening up the path to life, but in so doing, drops to the depths into the fiery waters below. And the, and the last scene you get is the helicopter, you know, cutting a hole with a torch inside the, the hole of the ship and saying, how many of you are there? And they said, six. Six out of 1,148 souls. Few there be that find it. That's a lot like what our life is. God calls us to walk by faith. It's not gonna make sense to you, Daniel's son. It's not gonna make sense, but God calls you to trust him anyway. Inform your decision by the word of God. Trust God. Trust him with the outcome. Even if, nobody, even if everybody else wants to shrink back and stay back where it seems to be safe, where everybody else is, where you're, where you're not frowned on and looked on and mocked and scorned for following this upstart guy, this carpenter named Jesus, don't stick around with everybody else because all the rest of the people died in that shit. The few that made it walked that difficult, narrow path following the one man who is qualified to lead them to a place of safety, who's willing to give his life for them. That is Jesus for you and I. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you this morning that as we study your word and we study what the new covenant is, Lord, it's my sincerest prayer that each one of those souls who are seated here today are part of that new covenant, that they know you by faith, that they have trusted in your son, that they are choosing to live by faith, that they are informing all of their decisions with the word of God, and they're choosing to obey it rather than leaning on their own understanding and just trusting you with the outcome. Come what may, I'm gonna choose to live the right way, not the pragmatic way that gets me to where I think I want to go. 
Help us to lose our lives that we might save it, to move forward when we want to shrink back, to trust him by faith and to, to launch into whatever it is that you're leading us to do, that we may evidence the fact that we have a faith in the Son of God living and alive inside of each one of us. We ask all this in Christ. From all of us here at Unity, we would like to thank you for spending time with us today. If you would like to know how to surrender your life to Christ, or if you'd like to share a response, visit us at www.unitybaptistashland.com. We would love the opportunity to help you in your next steps. You can also connect with us on Facebook at UBC Ashland. If you like what we're doing, don't forget to like and subscribe and share our podcast. Until next time, may we do as Psalm 119.10 says, With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. 